This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For more than 25 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. How do we balance the age-old battles between expertise and accountability in government? What is the role of experts in governance? And why has the challenges of bureaucratic capacity and control become far greater in the 21st century? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Professor Don Kettle, author of Experts in Government, the deep state from Caligula to Trump and beyond. Don, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's so great to be with you, Michael, and to have a chance to be able to talk about some of these really incredibly fascinating, at least to me, historical issues that have to do with the way in which government and the civil services evolved literally over the millennia. So, Don, what prompted you to write your latest work, Experts in Government, the Deep State from Caligula to Trump and beyond? And who is the audience for this work? Uh, I can start with the, the second piece first, and I hope that it's of, of interest to people who are more generally interested in policy and how we got to where we are and the big debates about the, the future of bureaucracy and especially these, these questions about the deep state and that uh, students, of course, I, I hope will have a chance to be able to read this and to understand that there are historical reasons why we're doing a lot of the things that we're doing and debating the things that we're debating. The question about how to why I went out uh, about this and why I reached back so far because this this book really goes back about twenty five hundred years and fewer than a hundred pages, which is kind of an insane project to begin with. But I've been hearing all these debates for a long time about the deep state, and it struck me that there there were historical reasons why we are why where we are and what that exploration of history might tell us about what we can learn for today. And so, and in part, I wrote this for myself because I was so curious about where it was that so many of these deep state battles have come from. It struck me that some of them might very well be eternal kinds of questions. And as I always used to tell my students, if you want to pick a topic to work on, if it's something that the ancient Romans worried about, that we're still worried about today, it's likely to be around for a while longer. So I wanted to try to nail some of those things down. And it was it was just great fun having a chance to be able to explore some of these issues. And it's, and it was, uh, it's very important to the topic, as you said. You, you do it in such a way that it's amazing it was only 90 pages because um, you do touch on so many different aspects. But what is the fundamental eternal paradox about experts in government and why? And the, the big problem is this, and it really gets to the core of the deep state debate that we're having now, but it's something that goes back as far as the as the ancient Chinese, uh, literally 2,500 years ago. And the big issue is this. You really can't have a government with the capacity to do anything 
without having experts. There are the things that are complicated to do that you need to have experts to do it with. Uh, consider just the, the task of building the Great Wall of China, which was pretty complicated. To be able to do that, you needed to have experts who knew how to do it. But once, once you create that expertise, once you bring that expertise into government, you have people who, who know more than the people who are making policy inevitably. And so the question is, how can those policymakers control the experts that they can't live without, but at the same time struggle to control? And so that's the, the really the, the, the basic problem. You can't live without experts. Once you create them, they're difficult to control. And so you get to this fundamental core problem of accountability that is this uh, this intersection, this tension between capacity and control. You know, that's a great segue to my next question, because I was wondering, I was hoping you could talk about some of the kinds of risks uh, government leaders, political leaders encounter when we rely on experts in government. And the, the big problem is that you, you have experts that run the risk of, of going their own way, of deciding independently about what policy ought to be, of, of either kneecapping or failing to follow the policy directions of, of top officials because they can bury their opposition in the expertise that they possess. Uh, the kind of a, we talk about the fog of war sometimes, but this is really the fog of bureaucracy and the fog of expertise. You have people who, who know enough to be able to, uh, to both uh, counter the policy directions that they're getting and and hide their opposition in ways that, uh, that really make it hard for policymakers to be able to deal with that. And this is something, again, that goes back a very long time. Uh, the, the subtitle of my book, as you pointed out, has to do with uh, the, the deep state from Caligula to Trump and beyond. And the book, in some ways, was prompted by the, the, by the discovery that Caligula was, was assassinated back in, in the middle of the first century. And the reason why was that people, especially in his uh, surrounding him, were becoming more and more concerned about the direction in which he was, he was taking the government. And in particular, that sometimes he seemed to be just absolutely crazy. So he was assassinated. And who assassinated him? It was his own Praetorian guard, his hand-picked guards of experts, whose job it was to protect him. So if you want to understand the deep state and the risks, there could be nothing that gets more to the core of the deep state than to discover that your own loyal guard were expert at trying to find ways of protecting you were the people who in the end did you in. The fundamental paradoxes really go back that far. And in terms of risks, we see that. Of course, we don't worry too much about that kind of thing today, but we do have this basic problem of whether or not experts engage in foot dragging, engage in opposition, engage in ways of trying to, to shift the policy directions that they're getting. They simply sometimes refuse to follow what it is that policymakers want. And I'm not sure that happens all the time, but it is part of this basic tension that has existed for thousands of years, that once you create experts, they're hard to control. But on the other hand, you can't do what you want to do without being able to rely on those experts to begin with. That's mm, a wonderful point and important illustration. But, you know, Don, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, certain terms that are being thrown around today, administrative state, government bureaucracy. Uh, uh, can you tell us the extent to which both the administrative state and bureaucracy are in essence what has become known today as the deep state? Is that basically what we're talking about? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the issue is this, uh, that Again, the Chinese discovered this. The best way to be able to organize experts is not to have them just willy-nilly as part of a, a kitchen cabinet that you rely on 
but as you begin to try to do complicated things to build them into a bureaucracy. And the, the Chinese really uh, invented bureaucracy and uh, discovered that organizing expertise in that way was important. And so we have we have that as the, the fundamental piece. That then creates the, the foundation for the administrative state because with that, what we see is the, the organization of experts in a bureaucratic structure that we call public administration. And in that public administration is in fact the creation of, of a large and robust group of experts in large and powerful bureaucracies that create the administrative state. Now the concern once you start doing that is whether or not people within those organizations uh, engage in, in things that are that are not consistent with the policies that how policymakers want. And that then has been been christened the deep state. But as I've suggested, uh, we, we often have this, this debate now, this term that surfaced in a way that people sort of suggest that it's new. And one of the things I want to suggest instead is that it really is eternal. We have been engaged in efforts to try to understand how best to try to work through these tensions for as long as there have been governments. And that goes back a pretty long way. So the deep state is really a, a, a basic pathology that comes along with the administrative state. The administrative state is inevitable because you can't do complicated things in government without creating bureaucracies to be able to harness the experts who are needed to get government's work done. And your book, uh, Don, your recent book really does a wonderful job of explaining that important job of explaining the historical realities. Um, and I, I want to stay on that because I would appreciate your historical perspective on the ongoing struggle to enhance government capacity. And that means enhancing the bureaucracy that the government needed and needs to accomplish its mission, while more importantly, strengthening the ability of the government to control that bureaucracy. How do we, what is the historical perspective there? Yeah, there there's so many great examples through history, but it's interesting to try to consider how it is that the, the ancient Romans did what they did. And uh, they, created one of the largest empires of all time but just think about the, the the challenge if you're sitting in rome trying to control people who were uh may, maybe out in the the tip of what had been uh, has become england or what's uh, in spain was going on what was happening out in the uh the eastern side of the mediterranean that's a long ways away far longer even now uh, even then than it is now because transportation was so slow and so you really had to trust the people who were out there. Uh, that's the, in many ways the the story of of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and the, and the great struggles and tensions that existed. And uh, he, that that story has become part of the, the lore and the problem of control. But for the Romans, the basic question was how do you try to to deal with that? And one of the things that they discovered was that to be able to make that work effectively, you needed good roads because you needed to be able to get your troops and commerce to from Rome to the to the provinces and from the provinces back to Rome. There was a, a real art to building those roads. They, they had Roman engineers who were incredibly, incredibly good. They calculated how wide the roads had to be so that you could have chariots passing each other. You know, not so much having a passing lane, but at least that they could pass each other. They needed to find a way to to make sure that the that when it rained, that the water drained off of the, the road. So they found a way to make a, a crown in the middle of the road so it would drain on either side. They created foundations and then using using stone to ensure that the that the roads just didn't erode away. Uh, if you look at 
uh, if, even if you visit Rome now today, uh, what's remarkable is how many of the structures that the ancient Romans built are still standing and still standing despite the passage of, of thousands of years. Uh, I wonder how many of the, the tall buildings that I'm looking out here in Austin that are under construction right now are going to be around in, in the year 4300. And so uh, I think probably not as many. And the, the Romans were very good and, and incredibly good at the expertise. So it, it, there are aqueducts that the Romans built that are still carrying water today. So you think about the kind of expertise that was required to do that, the way in which government created those that expertise to be able to create and sustain the republic and to do so for a remarkably long period of time. We tend to pay so much attention to uh, the, the the time of the Caesars, but the, the Roman Republic uh, lasted, uh, uh, the Roman Empire rather, lasted until the uh, at least in, well into the 400s. And so they've been around uh, for uh, for several times longer than the United States has been. So, and they did it on the basis of the expertise that was created. Yeah. One of the things, the fascinating parts of the book that you put out, it, it really is the historical context that I think is lost in the politics of the day. And I think it's very helpful that you that you provided that in this book. Um, I'm wondering, Don, how is the debate over the uh, over government bureaucracy? How has it become a proxy war, so to speak, over the size of size and power of government? Is, is that in essence what we're dealing with here? Yeah, because the basic problem here is accountability. And accountability really means accountable to whom for what. And when there are deep political divisions about what ought to happen in the country and who ought to do it, what kind of programs and policies that you ought to have, uh, the policymakers obviously battle with each other about that. But the, the way in which those battles get fought out are really rooted in, in the organizations that are created to carry those policies through. And so... Uh, if you want to try to understand how big government ought to be, you're going to see that members of Congress don't necessarily say that, well, the way to try to solve the problem of, of big government is to is to eliminate my role. Uh, if you are talking about presidents and their advisors, they're not likely to advise that either. So how best to try to fight those battles, and in particular, how to try to shape the way in which the bureaucracy performs. And what we have then is the, is the, the bureaucracy as... I, as the focus of a proxy war, uh, the creation of government agencies, how many agencies should there be? Uh, how should they be structured? Should there be a separate department for veterans affairs? We discovered that uh, we wanted to try to, to elevate the importance of government's care for the veterans. And so what we did is we took the, the Veterans Administration and made it the Department of Veterans Affairs, an interesting case of being able to, to keep the acronym without really uh, changing I didn't think much else about it because the all we did was to have presto, you're now a cabinet agency as opposed to a separate independent agency. And we did that for political reasons. We have the, the basic questions about how much money should we spend. And so one of the, the favorite tricks about trying to reduce the, the, the size of government is to create a program or to create an agency, but then fail to provide the money that's necessary to do what it is that Congress has legislated. And so you can you can fight the battle over what to do in so many different ways, not only creating the bureaucracy, creating the laws, but then also providing the funding for carrying that through. 
And then we have the, the people who are in charge of running them, which provide in our American system because of the, uh, the, the constitutional need to create Senate confirmation, you create another opportunity for battling these things out. But the thing that's important here is that every one of those questions has to do with a question of value, which means a question of politics, people deciding differently. And every time that there's an opportunity for creating a nudge in the bureaucracy one way or another, it creates another opportunity for for the way in which politics can come in and reshape the values that in turn uh, shape the way in which the government behaves. What is the evolving nature and role of experts in bureaucracy? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Professor Don Kettle, author of Experts in Government, The Deep State from Caligula to Trump and Beyond. You know, Don, um, your monograph has a wonderful job uh, of sort of illustrating in a historical context the evolving nature and role of experts in bureaucracy. And I, I like to jump ahead and, and and talk about that. And particularly, you start off with the Chinese experience, building the foundation of what is modern bureaucracy. I was hoping you could tell us more about that. And how, did the, how does the Chinese example demonstrate the deep and inescapable tensions at its core? Yeah, it, one of the things that was, was fun was having a chance to be able to go out and explore where some of these big issues came from. And the, as I suggested earlier, I think it's important to know is that the, the Chinese invented bureaucracy and they did so about uh, 300 and the 300s BC, between 300 and, and 400 BC. So it was a long time ago and a long time even before the Romans went at that. So it's important to understand that the, that the roots of what we're talking about today go back that far and go back to the ancient Chinese. And the, the problem was that the China was becoming a much more sophisticated empire that there was a need for trying both to, to defend the country from invaders, which led in part to the construction of the Great Wall of China, but then in addition to that, to simply to manage the, the, the network of roads and services and programs that the government at the time was creating. And so how to go about, as they discovered inevitably, how to create the expertise that was required, that, that with, with power, and with the role of the emperor came the need to try to find a way to exercise it effectively. And so to do so, they created a bureaucracy 
But the big step that they made was that instead of just having a, a collection of people who served at the pleasure of the emperor, there uh, in a, a kind of loose system, they, it was a, a form of bureaucracy that was created that was hierarchical, and they actually selected employees who worked for that bureaucracy through a competitive testing system. And that, that testing system that was pretty tough. Uh, we talk about reform of American bureaucracy now and selecting the, the best employees. It was pretty tough in those days because the, the test, among other things, consisted of having to memorize 400,000 characters of Confucian text and being able to parrot it back on demand. That the, the pass rate for that exam, not surprisingly, it was only 1% or 2%. But on the other hand, it created an opportunity for anybody anywhere in the country who could get the education, which was also bureaucratized, to be able to enter into government. So it wasn't just simply a, a bureaucracy dominated by the, by, the, by the ruling class, but created an opportunity into government for people from across the society. Uh, but it's also pretty tough because that's, this obviously is a pretty hard test to pass. And there were temptations sometimes for people to cheat. If you cheated, the, uh, the penalty for that was execution. So we probably there are some who might want to try to bring some of that back, but but the thing is that this goes this goes way back. I mean, creating a bureaucracy, hiring people based on merit, and creating access to government jobs for people based on the education and their ability to demonstrate their competence. I mean, some of that sounds pretty familiar. And the Chinese invented this back between three hundred and four hundred BC. Fascinating. Yeah, I was wondering as I was reading that part of the book, I was wondering, and I know you you did this all in in, in almost ninety pages, but I was also wondering as a follow up, Don, how in your mind when you're re- when you were doing this research, how does the Western experience, the West experience building bureaucracy, differ from the East? The first thing is to is to point out that the Eastern experience building bureaucracy was largely contained to the East. There's not a whole lot of evidence that anybody in the West knew about or paid much attention to what was going on there, so that much of this had to be reinvented. But the reinvention came in part through the ancient Greeks, who talked about the difficulty of having a pure democracy, having individuals make policy decisions, only to discover that they didn't have the expertise to carry it out. So the Greeks really defined this basic dilemma with Aristotle and Plato and others, and then the Romans, as was always their want, would steal anything that seemed useful. And they stole the idea about the uh, this, this basic tension and decided that the way in which they wanted and needed to do that was to create their own bureaucracy. And some of that was in the in the hands of the Roman army. We talk a lot about the, the kind of battles among the Caesars about, for, for power and control. But after that, things kind of settled down. Uh, not that there weren't continual conflicts and tensions, but that uh, there was a, a, a very sophisticated uh, Roman bureaucracy that was created that created sewer systems that took uh, sewage away from center cities, created roads with, with the drainage culverts on either side to be able to make sure that the places weren't flooded every time that it had rained. There was the creation of Roman baths to the point that even in, in Bath, England, there are, are baths that go a long way back because it was part of the Roman culture and tradition Inside the, the middle of Rome now, there are still Roman baths that are, that are still standing that became part of the, the basic governmental infrastructure that was created because that was an important part of the way in which uh, the Roman society developed. 
there were, of course, slaves who were responsible for some of this construction, but uh, you also had Roman soldiers who were, in part, when they when they went out, were conquerors, but but also civil engineers to be able to create the structures that were needed to try to support Roman rule. And so uh, the Romans uh, recreated bureaucracy, rediscovered the importance of, of experts, rediscovered, of course, the, the risk that came along with that. You can read the, the story of Caesar crossing the Rubicon as really a, an effort to try to find ways of the struggle of balancing the power of bureaucracy here in the in the hands of the army versus the need of, of Romans in the center of, of the country to prevent this bureaucracy from taking over. In that case, they were unsuccessful because Caesar did cross the Rubicon and he did take over. But the underlying pieces of this, you could see if, if, you, if you tell the story in that kind of way, some of it sounds kind of familiar to the issues that we're dealing with today. Absolutely. Yeah, and I want to stay on the Roman experience because you, you point out in your book um, their experience developing the rule of law in advancing government power. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that. It's such an interesting story there because one of the things that uh, that they that had to do is that if to be able to keep a country going for that long, and we're talking here again, remember that uh, from substantial amount of time, the last century BC through uh, easily the 400s AD, that uh, over the course of hundreds of years, you need to have some kind of structure so that you're not just just bouncing from one government system to another. And so what the Romans created was a, a rule of law that governed, among other things, uh, the nature of contracts between individuals, the relationship between the individuals and the government in, in terms of taxation, uh, just the, some of the basics that had to do with the structure of power and the relationship of people to their government. And that became crystallized into a rule of law. It was not surprisingly kind of kind of sloppy for a long time because there were traditions, things were written down in different places, but the, but Justinian, the, the emperor, toward the uh, end of the Roman Empire, invested a lot of energy in empowering people working for him to pull all the different elements of the Roman rule of law together so that there was a, a basic code on which they could rely, something they could consult. And so one of the things that the Romans bestowed on everyone else for centuries afterwards was an understanding about first the importance of a rule of law and then finding ways of crystallizing it so that disputes could be settled without resort to violence in all cases and that there would be a way to try to create a structure that would and most importantly govern the relationship between rome and its far-flung pieces of the empire and so those things were important now the, the problem of course was that the Roman Empire, as we all know, didn't last forever. And uh, the question is, what happened to that along the way, that this rule of law? And the, the answer is that there was an oral tradition that continued through the what we call the Dark Ages, but that the, the, the basic Roman rule of law that Justinian put together had uh, pretty much been, been lost. The, the, the basic texts that he had pulled together were lost that uh, then became... A, a difficult way for people during the Middle Ages to govern. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that basic Roman tradition was mainly kept alive by, by monks and abbeys who, who preserved the, some of the basic principles. But the, the great contribution of, of consolidating the rule of law was largely lost for hundreds of years. You mentioned one of those monks. I think it's Gratian. Um, 
I was wondering if you could tell me about his accomplishments and why it's so important for us today. Because what happened, as I said, the uh, this Roman rule of law, the consolidation of these basic principles that was actually written down in a, in a big, extensive document was, was lost. It was lost for hundreds of years, and nobody knows why it was lost, but it turned out that they discovered it in, in, a, in an abbey in, uh, in, uh, in Italy about... Uh, about 600 years later, and it fell to a monk named Gratian, who, along with a team of other experts, took this rediscovered piece and then updated it, uh, consolidated it, incorporated some of the things that have been learned in the Dark Ages, and created on that basis a, a new rule of law. So there, there are a couple of things that are important about this tale. Uh, one is that uh, it turns out that the Dark Ages weren't really quite so dark because there was this effort to try to, to create and to define the rule of law, that the, the foundation for coming out of the Dark Ages, as we know them, had to do with the rediscovery of the rule of law and using that as the basis for government, which then became a much more effective way for kings and emperors to rule. Make, make no mistake, this wasn't any democracy, but the, again, you got to have some way of being able to deal with disputes. And so we had that as the foundation uh, we had the fact that people who were able to create and to continue this great reputation, this, this great rule of law, were the people who, relatively small in number, who knew how to read and write, because this captured in writing, and so you needed to be able to, to write and to read what you had written. And those people turned out to be monks, for the most part, within the Catholic Church. What this meant then was that, that Gratian and his team not only recreated the Roman rule of law in the effort to try to, to advance uh, this basic principle, but then uh, the, the rulers of the time paid careful attention to it. Some of them knew how to read and write, some of them didn't, but the monks did, and that's all that mattered because they then had the ability to be able to define what it was that the rule of law ought to look like, on which the emperors and the kings could, could build their power. What that also meant then was that the, the Catholic Church became incredibly important because the Catholic Church created the essentially the bureaucracy within which these monks were working so that if you wanted to know what the rule of law was, you had to consult the monks and the monks were within the Catholic Church. And so the connection between the church and the kings, especially in Europe at the time, turned out to be tremendously important. The church became very political on the one side. The kings and the emperors became very religious, at least to the point of relying on the, on the monks for the, as a source for their power. And then that created, in many ways, uh, the, the bridge between ancient Rome and the Enlightenment, where people began thinking about the foundations of democracy. I'll tell you, as I was writing this, I, I discovered these fascinating tales about ancient Rome and Greece, and China in particular, to create these foundations of the rule of law. Then obviously it was these things were all picked up during the Enlightenment, which became the foundation for democracies around uh, around Europe and then to America. But my question was, was there a bridge between them? And the answer, as it turns out, was yes. It was in the hands of experts who were able to uh, to sustain the rule of law, rediscover it in all of its glory, to to create and crystallize it, and then provide the bridge between the importance of experts and and the foundations for the democratic rule of law later on. So that this, that's again, part of the story that, uh, that I think is, is absolutely fascinating is that the, uh, the rule of law didn't completely disappear 
And it turns out that it's the rule of law that provided this crucial bridge in a historical sense between ancient Rome and then the, the, the rise of, of the great empires and ultimately the great democracies that happened during the Enlightenment times. Fast forward, Don, to the Western experience in the 19th, 20th century of the British civil service. I was wondering if you could tell us about the rise of the British civil service and, and to what extent do the core ideas of both principal process that guided the creation of what is in essence the modern British government spill over to the American civil service system a few decades later? Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to think about the civil service system as something that uh, at least in modern times, and the kind of issues that we're dealing with now is something that that we, the Americans, invented. But that turns out not at all to be the case. But the story really comes about uh, about 30 years prior in Britain, and then the British government created really the, the first of the modern civil service systems as we know it. But the system that they created was really created to try to, to deal with the, uh, the spread of tremendous amounts of private power. There was uh, the British East India Trading Company that had uh, that was involved in, in not only bringing goods from from the East, from India, and from elsewhere. The British at that time developed a, a tremendous taste for tea. Needless to say, tea wasn't something that grew natively in England, and so that the only way the British could enjoy their favorite beverage was to import it. And just one sign of the way in which that power grew, but as that corporate power grew, and as that corporation discovered that the way to to operate most effectively and to create its own power was surprised through a bureaucracy, through experts. The British government decided that it needed a way to try to hold that power accountable. So it needed a counterpower in the government, which it then created in a special report by a couple of experts in Trevelyan and Northcote, who, who wrote a report arguing that the British needed a civil service system populated by experts that had the capacity to be able to help Britain govern its empire and to be able to make sure that it that the government had power that could that provide a balance to what it was that was happening in the private sector. There's those basic principles of a bureaucracy composed of experts, organized in hierarchical fashion, with people chosen based on their expertise, was something that then provided the foundation for the creation of the American Civil Service about about 30 years later. So uh, we tend to think about the, the assassination of President Garfield as being a great triggering event, which it was. But these debates were already underway, and the Americans simply borrowed what it was that the British had already invented. What is the role of experts in governance? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, 
Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Professor Don Kettle, author of Experts in Government, The Deep State from Caligula to Trump and Beyond. You know, uh, throughout your book, uh, the research question I think you ponder and explore is how can government create the competence it needs while holding that power accountable? And, And you point out that the then professor, Woodrow Wilson, formulated an answer to this question. I'm hoping you could tell us more about his answer and outline how this answer kind of falls short in the end. And one of the things that I I find interesting is that uh, before answering your question directly, the point why it still matters now is that the Office of Personnel Management had a draft regulation that had been issued and received, from my understanding, thousands of comments which essentially attempted to try to argue that the way to try to solve the deep state problem now was to create a sharp dividing line between those in charge of exercising policy decisions, which were politicals, and those in charge of carrying it out, which were administrators, and that the way to solve the deep state problem was to create that strong line between them. That was essentially the argument that Woodrow Wilson made back in in the late 1880s by arguing that We could create a bureaucracy with the experts that we needed without necessarily giving those bureaucrats the political power to decide what the policy ought to be. That bureaucrats could borrow techniques and tools that had been even proven in in the private sector, that even, even despots might create policy tools that might be pretty useful and interesting, but that you could borrow those tools without borrowing the, the policy issues that went behind it. And so there was this basic problem that we've been talking about has to do with how do you create the experts without having the experts take over? How do you control and hold them accountable? And it turns out that Woodrow Wilson had developed a a strategy for dealing with precisely that by creating this sharp dividing. Let's this just be a kind of a dusty piece of history in a paper that has been mostly long forgotten. The Office of Personnel Management has just recreated exactly that same argument. So it's a long, long tradition. And the thing is that if you think about it, it makes perfect sense except that it never works. And the reason why it never works is that uh, you think about the, the, the basic instruments of administration and discover that at every point that you turn around, the question of what you bring in, what you leave out, which information you rely on, which information you ignore, what data sets that you create, what, what kinds of values that you, that you create, uh, all have political implications. You can find an, an easy example when, when COVID was at its height and where there was an effort to try to roll out the, the vaccines. And it, it was discovered that, uh, that minority communities tended to have far lower rates of vaccination than the relatively well-educated and relatively more well-to-do people. And this wasn't the product of any policy design. It was an accident, as it turns out, a policy implementation, policy administration, the, the accident of the, the kind of values that underlay the construction of the healthcare system. And so every single thing down to the basic question of who gets a shot and who doesn't have to do with the operations of administration and the operations of administration involve values and degree to which they 
evolve values, which they always do. The line between policymaking and administration, often because it's implicit, it turns out to, to be impossible to draw. Absolutely true. You know, you mentioned OPM. You mentioned matters of this of this century, so to speak. So I, I was wondering. I'd like to get your insights, Don. If some, maybe you could highlight some of the core aspects of the current U.S. civil service system that, in your sense, and you use the term in your, in your book, sclerotic, that have become sclerotic and would benefit from reform. Could you tell us a little bit about that? There are a whole bunches of things that have happened because, uh, not surprisingly, one of the things that 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 happens as you create a system. Uh, is that it gradually over time acquires new interpretations, new rules, additional regulations that are created, and probably even more important, things that people say you have to do, which it turns out that you don't have to, that may not be included in, in the law to begin with. The, the law inside agencies say, well, you got to do it this way, but the law and regulations don't really say that. Uh, so some examples. The first is that the hiring process is just awful. I, I think everybody agrees with that. But the it takes three times longer to hire in government than it does in the private sector. The average time to hire in the private sector right now is a little over 30 days. In government, it's still around 100 days. And so if you start off from the point of view of an agency trying to hire your employees, it's a frustrating process to go through. If you're a potential employee, it's, it's incredibly frustrating, especially if you're a, a younger person with a lot of student debt, you know, having to wait for, for months to be able to to get on board when you've got debt payments that you've got to make can end up just driving people to places that could hire you more quickly. Uh, we have a mismatch because of that between the skills the government needs on the one hand and the skills that the system tends to produce. Uh, we tend to, to to hire people into, into stovepipes and we tend to hire them because of their ability to operate effectively in stovepipes. And as a result of that, we, we don't have people who are as effectively working in teams as they need to. So we have that problem. We, we have the problem of uh, having people who perform really well and not being able to reward their work and provide them with incentives. And the flip side is also true. And here's where uh, the, the Schedule F people, the supporters there, have a point, which is that it's very hard to get rid of poor performers. The dirty secret about this is that, uh, they, of course, they make this argument all the time, but I've yet to encounter a single senior government official, current or former, who doesn't have in a back closet a story of somebody that they wanted to get rid of was a poor performer that they just gave up on because it was just too much of a hassle. And so we have that as a problem that, that everybody uh, will, will quietly agree to, except for the people who use that as a basis for, for publicly arguing for changes in the system. And so we, we have a, a system that turns out to be just full of barnacles based on what it is that people do, what it is that people say you have to do, what it is that the law says that we can are constrained by, the difficulty of creating this hiring process, the difficulty of rewarding good performers and the problem of doing poor performers. As a result of that, we've created the foundation for the fundamental attacks on the merit system that we see through the proposals that have surfaced through Schedule F. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about Schedule F, but I, I was really fascinated by you, you bring up the approach to government. And in this sense, we talk about political parties and particular particular presidents. I was fascinated. How did Nixon's approach to the bureaucracy differ from Reagan's approach? We had a, a fundamental shift in the way in which uh, Republicans in particular, but more broadly conservatives in general, approached government. Nixon came in at, at a very different approach 
and was uh, interested far more in a kind of massive reorganization of government, uh, the kind of effort to not only create the EPA and to expand its functions with new agencies, but then also to consolidate some of the other organizations that were that were existing. So instead of just trying to engage in privatization, and it turned out by that point they had pretty much privatized everything that they could, uh, instead of trying to make the argument shrinking government in that way, he really made an argument that was kind of corporatist and making government work more effectively. It's fascinating to ask where we would be today because he would have reorganized the government substantially compared to where it was that he found it when he came in. And Reagan has held an enormous reverence, uh, except that people who hold him in reverence don't go back to look at what it is he tried to do. And he, he really tried to, to, to shrink government. He tried to reduce the number of government agencies. One thing he did do was to launch a, a, a major effort at government privatization. Um, if, if you go to a, a federal government cafeteria, if you look at the guards who were in charge of safeguarding federal buildings, uh, if you look at the people who are performing maintenance on on uh, on Air Force jets, uh, in many cases, uh, that work has been just contracted out and privatized. And so that really came out of the Grace Commission during the during the uh, during the Reagan administration. But Reagan, as it turned out, wasn't as much of a Reaganist himself because he ended up with a, a bureaucracy that was actually larger in terms of the number of employees at the end of his administration than it did at the beginning, despite the privatization. And that had to do largely with the with the effort to try to grow the defense establishment. Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic to see the difference there between their approaches to bureaucracy. But, you know, I, we come to Bill Clinton and the Clinton administration with the Reinventing Government Initiative. And, and you point this out. I was wondering how... How did that initiative in particular, the Clinton administration's initiative, deal with the bureaucracy and handle the question of leveraging experts? The fundamental proposition at the core of reinventing government was that the the largest problem in government was that experts did not have sufficient latitude to be expert, that there were too many barriers in their way that created rules, regulations, procedures, and cultures, and a lack of rewards that just simply hamstrung people who knew what needed to be done. So the argument was that unleash the people who know what to do and they will do better. And there were lots of examples that were based on that. And there were there was at the time something called the Hammer Awards given out by people who had found a way to, to break the glass in buildings to be able to create new processes that uh, in many ways, I mean, the, the VA, many, many of the big improvements in the VA came about because of exactly that process. So that part was a, was a huge success. But on the other hand, the, uh, the administration discovered two important things about that effort. One was that uh, it didn't really scratch the public where they itched, that there were relatively few political rewards for doing good things better. But on the other hand, there are lots of problems for, for the downside. In particular, without shrinking the size of the bureaucracy, it was difficult to try to make the case that, in fact, they'd accomplished anything. And so what we saw was the not only making government work better, which meant unleashing bureaucrats, experts to do what they knew how to do, but to make government cost less. And to be able to demonstrate that, they developed a plan for removing through through buyouts and other kinds of strategies, hundreds of thousands of federal employees. And the problem is that the people that they removed weren't necessarily the, the result of any kind of real strategic plan about which employees that the government did not need, but rather never simply to get people out the door because they wanted to hit the political target. 
And so again, we get to back to the point of the the problem of government performance on the one hand and the political realities on the other that really created a kind of, of sharp tension within reinventing government. And the irony, of course, then was when Al Gore ran for president, we all heard almost nothing about reinventing government, even though he had been the person in charge. And the reason was that it didn't get the kind of political traction that he, he believed that he needed to be able to make things happen and make things work. How do we balance the age-old battles between expertise and accountability in government? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Professor Don Kettle, author of Experts in Government, The Deep State from Caligula to Trump and Beyond. Don, why have the challenges of bureaucratic capacity and control become far greater in the 21st century? I think that there there are some important reasons here that underlie it. One is that uh, we, we have growing expectations about what it is that government will do what a government should do. If you watch the evening news, one of the things that's fascinating is how many problems that pop up just about anywhere and where people ask, well, where was the government? Uh, we, we had a, a window pop out of an Alaskan Airlines plane. And so the question then is, well, where was the FAA? Why did it not ensure higher levels of safety? Why did it certify the plane? Well, I mean, it's it's not like the the FAA built the plane. And it's not like the FAA was in charge of tightening the bolts. It's not that it was flying the plane. And it's not like it ha- hired the mechanics to go inspect it, uh, to be able to have enough inspectors for the FAA to conduct its own independent inspections of individual bolts and individual planes would require a bureaucracy so large that nobody could possibly be able to, to, pay, to pay for it. And we'd be complaining about that. So we have... We have these expectations about what government will do, should do, in very complex systems where it can't do the job itself, where the best it can do is to leverage the actions of people in other agencies and other sectors, and where the expertise for doing that is, is very tough and where, the again, the mismatch between successes, because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of flights every day that, that work happily and successfully and safely, but where the downside risks are so huge and where the, the lightning rod over government agencies is something that gets struck all the time. And so we, we have that as a problem. Uh, we have a fundamental truth, as Bill Eggers and I argue in, in our new book, Bridge Builders, that the, and the fundamental truth is this, that there is no problem any longer that matters that any one organization or any one expert can control, that, that everything that matters is essentially networked. And so the challenge for creating a bureaucracy is to create sufficient capacity for managing those networks and their interconnections to, to transform government from uh, a kind of vending machine where we 
stick the money in the top and pull the lever and wait for the program to come out the bottom into something that's much more like a symphony orchestra where you bring the experts together to play the music that you want to play. But that's, that's a big transformation that's proving very difficult to do because we, we don't have a rule of law that really describes that, that licensing that, that, that controls that. We don't have a system of bureaucratic capacity that's focused in that way. And we have a political mismatch between expectations on the one side and the capacity of government, on the other hand, to do it. So this, this in, in my mind, is one of the, the great challenges for the next third of the 21st century. It's understanding the important lessons that were taught from the history that goes back to, to ancient China and ancient Rome to the ongoing policy issues and dilemmas that we face today. Understanding the importance of those, those basic values and norms that, that are important, the, the inevitably political role that government experts play, while at the same time, we have new challenges for governmental effectiveness that, that have to be shaped by the by the changing capacity of government to be able to do that. And the problem is we don't really have a good system that's capable of doing that. So, Don, I was happy to read in your book that uh, you quote um, Aaron Wadovsky, the great Aaron Wadovsky, and uh, you agree with him that experts, expertise is inherently political. Why is it so important to excise the ghost of rationality that haunts the House of Public Policy? And given this reality, is there any value in establishing the Schedule F option issued by the previous administration? Is it meritless on its face or is it more uh, an issue of, of, of how it was presented? And that's a, such a great, great, great question. And because one of the things I lose what few friends I have left by pointing out the fact that, you know, the, the Schedule F people have a point. They have two points in particular. One is that there clearly were cases where people within the bureaucracy fought successful battles in some cases against the, the, the policy ideas that the Trump administration came up with. So the, they have a legitimate complaint. And the other complaint that they've got is that, yeah, it really is too hard to get rid of poor performers. So uh, I think that it's important to, to recognize that, although I disagree with their answer to the question, they've got the right question. So so we've got that. But the, the core issue that I think that, that they're onto, that a lot of the people who are fighting against them miss, is that there is this great work by the great Aaron Woldowski. And one of the things that he was so terrific at pointing out. Not only not only did he write so incredibly well, but he had the insight for the right questions and good instincts. And one of the things that, that he argued was the way in which values are shot through everything that government does. We talked about that a little bit before, but there's it's impossible to think about any administrative stuff that matters that doesn't have some piece of value and doesn't involve value judgments along the way, whether it's the, the, the way in which police pull people over on the side of the road and what they do to... The, the basic questions about how, how best to try to put out fires and where you put fire stations to, the, the questions about how it is that you launch vaccines and whether or not you can convince people that the vaccines are safe to begin with. Those are all political decisions. They all involve issues of values. And so that the problem that we're wrestling with now, I think, is that there are many, many, many people who, have, who, who worship at, at the Church of Rationality. And that they believe that it is possible to discover the right answer to any question by sufficiently studying it. And once they know it, that that, in fact, is what ought to be done. But the reality is that there's uh, the dirty, awful secret is that there's, there's nothing that we try to do that matters that has an absolutely sure answer. I mean, we don't, we don't know for sure about 
how safe the air traffic control system is. We, we don't, in fact, uh, land planes with perfect precision at every moment of every day. And there are, there's uncertainty that's built into that. Uh, there are uncertainties that come along with the, the question about how to try to build uh, water treatment facilities and how much capacity there's going to be. I have the, the great joy of, of living in Austin, but one of the things that's always peculiar to me is that every time there's a forecast of weather that goes below freezing, there's a question about whether or not the power grid is going to hold up. And those, those are all political questions at their core. And Bodasi was terrific at pointing that out. So the question is, given the fact that politics is everywhere, then how best can you, should you, must you try to find ways of understanding the way in which values shape policy while at the same time bringing in the expertise that you need? And the answer to that is not trying to draw a sharp line between policymaking and policy administration. That's why, uh, and ultimately, I think Wilson was, was wrong trying to create that distinction more than 100 years ago. We really have to understand the importance of those values, but, but to make those values transparent, and to try to find ways of, of fighting out what those values ought to be, to be able to bring the values into policy making and administration, while at the same time holding the experts accountable for the way in which they deliver goods and services to the public. So, Don, today we spoke about your most recent book, Experts in Government, the Deep State, from Caligula to Trump and Beyond. And you also referenced uh, the book you did with Bill Eggers called Bridge Builders. How do, can folks get copies of these books? Sure. And the, the good news is that the uh, this new book that's called Experts in Government is available actually for free for download from Cambridge University Press. All you have to do is to search for that, and it's available there, available for free download through the end of January. And so I've been able to make that arrangement with the press. It's a, it's a short and I hope easy read of less than 100 pages. And so that's available there for free. And the book with Bill Eggers which is called Bridge Builders, is available uh, on Amazon and then also through the press website at the Harvard uh, Business Review Press. That's great to hear that the uh, experts in government monograph, the book is for free until the end of January. That's wonderful. Don, thanks for joining us today. It was a great conversation. I appreciate your time. It was such a great fun having a chance to be able to talk with you about this. As, as you can tell, these, I think these questions are fascinating and in many ways eternal. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Professor Don Kettle, author of Experts in Government, The Deep State from Caligula to Trump and Beyond. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.